Hello there. I'm Colleen. I'm Anders. And I'm Daniel. We're three nerds that met through our love of science fiction and fantasy storytelling. Of course, one of our favorites is George Lucas's signature achievement, Star Wars. And if there's one thing the internet definitely doesn't have enough of, it's nerds talking about Star Wars. So here we are with yet another Star Wars podcast, where each week we discuss one of the films in the current Star Wars canon. From the sands of Tatooine to the levels of Coruscant, we cover it all. Yet another Star Wars podcast is available wherever you get your podcast and is part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dave. And join us every Thursday for a new episode of Two Player Bros, a podcast about two guys who play way too many video games. Join me and Dave as we talk about the latest in Xbox, PlayStation, PC, and VR news, previews, and reviews. We have it all, and we play it all. And join us every other week for Post Game, where we play through and dive deep into our favorite modern classics and new releases. That's Two Player Bros, available every Thursday, wherever you get your podcast. Part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. You and I have unfinished business. Baby, you ain't kidding. Hey, I'm John and I'm Lloyd and welcome back to another week of on the QT presented by Forgotten Entertainment. We are here to talk about. Well, okay, let's get into this right off the bat. (laughs) We're here to talk about what I would consider the fifth film of the Quentin Tarantino filmography. Now, listen, on the last episode, I went through a whole rant saying that that even though people some people are saying Kill Bill's one movie, it was supposed to be, but that it was broken into released in two different, you know, uh, uh, showings a year apart from each other. Then I said on the last episode that at the beginning of Kill Bill Volume 1, it says the fourth film by Quentin Tarantino, which means this has got to be the fifth film. Well, here's where everything goes wrong, because if you watch Kill Bill Volume 2, at no point does it reference itself as the fifth film uh, of Quentin Tarantino. It does not do that. That puts a strike against me. And then today... I was going to watch uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for the first Spoiler. time. Spoiler alert. I have never seen this before. Let's go to watch it for the first time. And right there on the DVD Blu-ray case on the, uh, you know, on the poster section of it, it says the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. So this whole show on the QT and our premise might just be bullshit, but right. we're, we're doing 10 episodes no matter what. So uh, <laughs> this week, Lloyd and I have a, a, another great guest. And he is actually uh, part of the family, uh, founding family, founding fathers of uh, Forgotten Entertainment. He's been on our show, Pine Comics, uh, 1.6 million times. And, uh, <laughs> and we, we've been on his show several times. We love him. It's Andrew Morgan from the awesome Nomcast. Andrew, what's going on, man? I am great. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, John, I feel your pain. Uh, even in the research for this movie, they're like, the marketing people of this movie didn't know what to do because it says on the Kill Bill volume one posters, it says fourth film in the Kill Bill volume two posters. It doesn't say anything. And it I they originally printed that it was the fifth movie and then they took it away. Everybody is messed up about this. So don't feel bad. It, even down to the people who are working 
for Quentin Tarantino <laughs> at the time didn't know what the hell to do with it. Yeah, I, I think this whole thing is very confused in terms of how many films he's actually done. Um, but but for the sake of the podcast, it's the fifth film, fifth film, two separate guests. Of course, Sean McLaughlin from HorrorNewsNetwork.net was on on Kill Bill Volume One. Andrew's here for two. So we're, we're just calling it fifth film. All right. I'm going to take my copy of uh, Once Upon a Time and, and just erase that nine and write <laughs> ten over it because I want to be right for once in my life. <laughs> uh, Andrew, before we get into everything. Uh, real quick, would you like to tell everybody out there about Nomcast and uh, what you do? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm the host of the Nomcast, the Netflix original movie podcast. Uh, every Wednesday, we have new episodes where we either are previewing, reviewing, or some kind of version of Netflix news every single week. Netflix movie news. Um, you know, we just did... Uh, you know, some true crime stuff recently. We had an interview with Bone Star Michaela Conlon, uh, who was in the the prank movie Bad Trip with Eric Andre. We'll do interviews. We'll do all kinds of stuff. And we just try to, you know, it's all Netflix original movie centric. And we try to keep it interesting every single week with guests from, you know, any industry, comedians, podcasters, you know, film professionals, whoever. Is all this <laughs> going to your head, Andrew? Oh God, no! Uh, you'd have <laughs> you'd have to see my download numbers for that. Um, <laughs> it, it keeps me uh, grounded for sure. No, it, it it's good. Uh, we're just trying to grow all the time, man, and, and just have fun with it. So, you know, it's good that we get recognized every now and then from from Netflix or something, and and get a cool guest uh, that that makes us seem like we're maybe more legit than we are. Yeah, but, well, uh, I tell you, I'm co- color me impressed. So I appreciate that, Lloyd. Thanks, yep. man. Yeah, we love the show. And if you haven't heard yet, we uh, we actually did you a favor. We came up with a slogan. I don't know if you want to use this or not, but it's uh, <laughs> it's the Nomcast. Go fuck yourself, Hulu. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, especially after today, man, uh, Disney made a deal with Sony like a few days after Netflix did a deal with Sony. So it's like, fuck you, Disney. Anyway, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So normally on these episodes, you know, we start we talk a lot about production details. We talk a lot about about uh, about the cast and stuff like that. We did that in the last episode. Even if these are separate movies, these were made at the same time. So we're not going to get into all the filming in terms of like the dates and all that. Just go back and listen to that last episode. Lloyd is going to give you a cast list, but we're, we're going to do it a little bit differently than normal because so many people returned. We're going to focus on the people that are new in this film uh, or in two cases, people that came back and played different roles in this in this film. Mm-hmm. So, Lloyd, why don't you take it away with uh, with our Kill Bill Volume 2 cast list? Well, let's get right to Gordon Liu as Pai Mei. Now, he did return. He was in Kill Bill Volume 1 as Johnny Mo. Uh, he's now Pai Mei, uh, you know, immensely powerful martial artist, master. And th- this is a character who's actually been featured in Hong Kong Kung Fu movies, you know. Also, I think it was Bak Mei in those movies. Uh, he's the trainer of the Vipers, Bill, L, and Beatrix. And he's the one who took out uh, L's eye. <laughs> yes. We, we learned mm-hmm. that in the movie. And that's pretty cool. Uh, and he did teach Beatrix the fatal movement known as the five point palm exploding heart technique. Try and say that five times fast. No, <laughs> no, I honestly, I honestly, you know, 
had not seen this movie in a long time years ago. And when that like shitty, like metal band, five finger death punch came out, <laughs> I hadn't seen kill bill volume two in so long that I thought that they were referencing the five point palm exploding heart technique. I got them. I get them mixed up all the time. Uh, one of them is a very cool maneuver from a, uh, from a movie I enjoy. And one of them is a shitty band, probably from Florida. So <laughs> hey, I know some people who love that band. <laughs> all right. Do you guys know the casting uh, deal with this character? No. What is it? Go ahead. So originally Tarantino was going to play that role himself. Uh, yeah. And, and he decided last minute not to do that probably because it would have been super racist. <laughs> yeah. Um, but his next move, yeah. Is that he was going to replace the role and then have it be dubbed over with his voice being like a bad doubled Kung Fu movie. And then he ditched the whole thing. And then obviously we see it as we see it. He chose correctly. Yes, he did. <laughs> he did. He Big did. disaster avoided. <laughs> he, he avoided the, uh, the anti-Asian sentiments of the Phantom Menace in, uh, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways by, by letting, uh, letting Gordon Liu play that, that role. <laughs> I, I was surprised it didn't originally go to Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Yeah. She's always, she's always up for playing an Asian person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Asian character. Yes. All right, Mister. Who else we got? We have Michael Parks as Esteban Viejo, uh, a retired pimp and um, basically Bill's father figure. Now, you will remember him also from Kill Bill Volume 1 as the Texas Ranger Earl McGraw. Now, this character was actually supposed to be played by. You know, John Ricardo Montalban. Yes. Yeah. But he did not show up to the, I think first read through mm -hmm. and Michael Parks did and he read it and, and Tarantino was so impressed, uh, rightfully so that he cast him in that role, you know, and John, like you, uh, we talked earlier, you, um, you weren't really aware that Gordon Liu was Pai Mei. And no. I didn't know that Michael Parks was Esteban oh, okay. watching this character. I'm like, wow, that character is really good. It wasn't until later that I realized it was Michael Parks. I always knew that was Michael Parks until this viewing and doing research. I never realized that Pai Mei was the same guy as Johnny Mo. Never. Yeah. yeah. It's insane. Yeah. Never knew it. <laughs> uh, then we have Bo Svensson as uh, Reverend Harmony, who was presiding at the, uh, it wasn't a wedding yet. As we learned, it was a wedding dress rehearsal yep. <laughs> of Beatrix and Tommy. Uh, now this guy, he played Buford Pusser. In the two Walking Tall sequels, and he also had a cameo in Inglorious Bastards, which will be coming up. Uh, and he did appear in the original The Inglorious Bastards, Bo Svensson, which is why he pulled him in. Yeah, Bo Svensson. Then you have Chris Nelson as Tommy Plimpton. Now, he was the fiance, Beatrix's fiance, who was killed in the wedding massacre. This guy's a makeup artist, a visual effects artist, writer, and actor. He's done a lot of movies. Uh, Halloween 2018, not a great movie, but, you know, pretty good makeup. Kill Bill Volume 1, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, Sin City, Thor, Dark World. A lot of stuff. Definitely not an actor, though. Definitely. <laughs> and they, they actually named that character. The Plimptons were named after the animator, George Plimpton. George right? Plimpton. Yeah. His name? yeah. Um, so, yeah, that whole section, which is funny because if I'm not mistaken, uh, David Carradine's niece is Martha Plimpton, the actress Martha Plimpton. Oh, so, I, I didn't know that she was related to him. 
Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I think I read that in my research of Carradine. So, yeah, it's interesting. Plimpton's a plenty over here. <laughs> <laughs> plenty of Plimptons here. Yeah. I and would say have- a plethora of <laughs> <laughs> That's even better. Yes. Then we briefly have Samuel L. Jackson as Rufus, uh, the organist at the wedding. Not much going on there, but it's good to see him. Nice little cameo. You got, yeah. yeah. Do you guys buy into the rumors that uh, people hope that it's Jules uh, who went adrift after Pulp Fiction? No, uh, no, I don't buy into that. I, I read that and I thought, you know, there's some things I like when people will say this is possible. And then there's somewhere I'm like, no, you know, I, I just like to think Rufus is this old guy that's been in, you know, in Texas. And like he says, I was a coaster. I was a, you know, like he's whenever these bands roll in the town, he backs them up. And yeah. I like, I like that story, but yeah, I, one of the problems with, with some of the, uh, the fan fiction or the fan theories is, you know, we got to jam everything into everything. But, yeah. and I, and I did read that and I thought, ah, oh, you know, I get it. I see what you're trying to do there, you know? And because, you know, Jules does like go to drift and walk the world. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm not buying that. Not unlike Kung Fu. <laughs> yes. <Correct>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get into, uh, before we get into the actual film itself, Andrew, we kind of been talking about this with all of our guests. Big Tarantino fan, uh, you don't care, where are you at? Oh, no, I'm, I'm a big Tarantino fan. Uh, some, of, some of his movies are harder to, harder to rewatch than others, maybe, but ultimately, the guy doesn't make really a bad film film and he's very careful he's a super nerd video store nerd you know he's so much like me and my friends growing up he's just this hyper version of that uh, and has channeled his nerddom uh, into something positive you know he's so referential Uh, he's one of the best writers I have a bunch of his screenplays uh, for just reading and researching at home so absolutely a big fan All right. So I'm going to throw this out to all three of us at the beginning of this episode. We're going to rate it at the end, but I'm going to throw it right out there at the beginning because we've already said a lot. And a lot has been said about whether or not these are two movies, whether or not this is two halves to one movie, which it could be both, you know, put it in this context, Andrew, whether or not they're two movies or whether or not it's two halves of a movie. Do you prefer the first half or the second half? The first without a doubt. All right. Manster first or second half. First half, no question. I am absolutely positively on the same side as both of you. The first half. That's why I like the idea that these are two movies, because even though it is one big story, it almost feels like he purposely, you know, it's kind of hard to think about the fact that these are made at the same time, because it almost feels like maybe it's through editing that these are two different movies. You know what I mean? Like the pacing is different. For, for both of them incredibly. They're the, not even the same genre, John. Right, right. Well, the first right. movie is is essentially a revenge martial arts uh, movie, and this is like a revenge Western, um, yes. amongst other things. So I, even though we're going to grade them later, I wanted to get that right out of the way. I wanted to see if any one of us thought Kill Bill Volume 2 was better than one, because I generally, in my conversations with people, don't find anybody that likes two better than one. I you know think, what's funny, John? Yeah. Is that I looked at the critical scores and Kill Bill Volume 2 almost just like it nudges out Volume 1 across the board. Really? And I don't get I'm it surprised because I'm that. like you. I think uh, any fans that I've talked to just amongst friends, everybody prefers Volume 1. Interesting. Yeah, universally. Same here. 
All right. I didn't I didn't realize that the critical consensus was so much that way. It's so, slight, but it's there. It's there. It's it's enough to it's enough to you'll see a, a tick on the number. So yeah. that's all that matters. All right. So at the end of volume one, we find out that uh Beatrix, as her name is uh not bleeped out as much in this one. Um a couple times. A couple times, but not, you know, we we know her name. She uh has killed off Oren Ishi and uh Vernita Green. She's back in America. She is going to go after uh, Bud. She's going to go after L driver and she's going to go after Bill, obviously kill Bill. Um, she's come back. She is ready to take on this mission. Um, and right off the bat, we get what I think is my favorite bit in this whole movie. Personally, um, the entire bit with Bud. What I love about the Bud bit, and, and I don't know whether you guys feel this way or not, Bud is played by Michael Madsen is that he was a member of the, you know, the divas that attacked and, and killed, you know, the, the wedding party. And uh, it's Michael Madsen. So he's this tough guy, but in this movie, he's playing like a old broken down. It's like a schlub. Guy. He's a schlub. He's yeah. living in a trailer in the middle of like this, like weird little mountain range in the middle of the desert. He talks to Bill about like Bill comes to warn him and he essentially says, you know, she deserves whatever she gets. You know, we, we fucked her over. We deserve to die. And you know what? She's going to get hers. Um, they show him go to work where he's humiliated by his boss. He's humiliated by the strippers that work there, um, which, you know, being humiliated by a stripper isn't always a bad thing. Some guys pay for that, but he's not paying for it. Um, you know, so you see the shell of a guy. Right. You see the shell of what at one point they referenced the fact that he had a Hatari Hanzo sword. They referenced the fact, uh, have you kept up on your sword work? They reference all this stuff that makes you think, man, I would love to see a movie with Bud 15 years ago in it. But what I love about the Bud character is she goes through essentially Vernita Green and Oranishi who are still super in shape. They're obviously still very violent. Um, Orenishi is this fucking incredible Yakuza boss and, and has this, you know, gang of hundreds of people around her. She goes through them almost like a hot knife and butter. The fat dude <laughs> fucks her life up really badly. Do either of you guys, uh, Andrew, I'll start with you. Do, do you, I love that. I've always loved the fact that she sneaks up on his trailer. She, you know, she's wearing the fucking, the, the, the ninja mask, essentially. Oh, yeah. She does all this stuff. She's trying to get the drop on him. Trying to get the drop on him. And, and as soon as she kicks the door in, he blasts her in the tits, as he says, with uh, a couple barrels of rock salt and buries her alive. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know, Andrew, do you, do you like that about that character? It's it's almost cartoonish the way it's set up, you know, and at for I think when I originally watched it, just to be fair to the scene, I think I liked it more then. And when I watched it now, because of what you just said, you can either you can take this scene one of two ways. You can either be like, you know, that it is kind of like Looney Tunes where it's like super overly prepared and then go fuck yourself. You got shot in the chest or you could be like, like you said. She is a master. How does she mess that up so bad that she goes right in the front door? You're a goddamn ninja and an assassin. How do you mess that up so badly? To me, it's almost poor staging. It would be cooler if she like dropped through the roof and he just met her and shot her point blank there or something. At least it makes it look like she had the attempt. 
Because you don't hide under the steps and make all this effort to then just walk in the front fucking door. It's a tiny trailer. Right. <laughs> well, that's that's it where is. I'll I'll move the question over to Lloyd then. Do you think that this scene in this movie, do you think that it, it was written to kind of um, I guess focus on Beatrix's uh what's the word? Give me a second to think of the word. She's uh, she she's not she uh, focus on her total underestimation of Bud. She's going to go through the front door because you know what? I just killed the Husa master. I just killed Vernita Green. Right. This guy, he's a schlump. He's going to be drunk in there. I'll hide. He'll go inside. I'll sneak in the front door. I'll probably kill him while he's jerking off or sleeping. You know, this this scene does confuse me. You know, I'm kind of with Andrew. It's cartoonish. And why is she going through the front door? But I think, you know, she might have had a I don't want to call it a false sense of superiority because she did just go through the, you know, Yakuza. Thank you very much. And uh, Vernita Green. So, you know, maybe she's thinking, like you said, you know, I can take this guy. No problem. Uh, But it does confuse me because, you know, she wouldn't I don't feel like she would be that that open with it you know i think she still would do it you know some some other way go go through the back window or something like that i don't know Uh, it's confusing and 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 again like l driver says later you know i just hate the fact that you're the one that took her out because you're such a schlump yeah yeah some of my favorite dialogue um well it's not dialogue between characters because she doesn't say anything but is the whole bit where Madsen's character is talking to her, you know, just all the little things where he's, you know, he essentially tells her, you know, you know, you know what this is, the mace. I can give you this, the flashlight, or I can give you the mace. I, I just like, I like the whole idea that like you see this guy who like, you know, 20 minutes before was getting yelled at to, to mop up turds in a strip, uh, you know, a strip club's restroom. <laughs> he, he kind of like, you see his chest puff up again when he takes her out. You know, because he knows that, like, you know, like she got through everybody else. She's not going to get through me. Now, obviously, that doesn't last, you know, super long. So we get into the next scene. Uh, essentially, wait, wait, before you go, I have one question for you guys. Yeah. In the scene earlier with Bud in the doorway and um, Bill standing outside, I, is it just the camera angle or what? But Bud looks like a little boy compared to Bill. Well, they're supposed to kind of set that because they're brothers, right? So it's kind of this relationship, which, by the way, wild flex to have David Carradine, who's, what, 30, 25, 30 years older than than Madsen to be brothers. (laughs) That's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, that scene more bothers me now with the anti-Semitic slur that he drops for no reason. But uh, because Tarantino's, I like to say Tarantino's better than that, but he always has at least a few lines of dialogue in every movie that I go, come on. Yeah. (laughs) This movie is perfection. If you just don't do stuff like that. But yeah, anyway, um, I still like the guy quite a bit. Um, But yeah, that scene, it's a very odd scene because they purposely shoot it downward like that. And, and, he just doesn't care. He's just completely checked out and Carradine's just on a whole different level. It's an, oh, yeah. it's a very odd pairing. It's a very odd conversation. Um, but what'd you think, John? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's obviously weird that the age range is so different, but I, you believe it. You know what I mean? They sell it. 
that these are two brothers that like, you know, I, I like the little dialogue in it too. Like, like you, you know, you said the, the stupid thing he says, you know, you're right. Like this, that's Tarantino with, with having to drop these, like, you know, we talked about it in the first episode, the kill bill movies have been a nice reprieve because the N word isn't said once in either of them. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, he still has to do something like that, but I do like the line where he says, you know, we haven't talked in a while. And the last time we talked wasn't, you know, wasn't so pleasant. I like, I like stuff like that because it makes you think what happened between these guys. Why is, why is Bill like obviously a multimillionaire, you know, and Bud lives in a fucking trailer. There's a whole story there that we don't know. Um, You know, and obviously Bill cares for Bud because when we get to see Bud's Atari Hanzo sword, which he did not pawn for $250 in El Paso, (laughs) it says, engraved in it to bud the only man i've ever loved you know yeah. so you know there I, I like little bits like that um so yeah they toss her they toss her in the grave now andrew me and lloyd were talking about this a little bit me and lloyd were talking about this a little bit earlier did you recognize the name on the grave that uh beatrix is buried in oh i did see that but i didn't write it down which one was it it's Paula Schultz, and the death date is 1898. Now, what it is based on is there was a movie, I believe, called The um, the Many Deaths of Paula Schultz. Yeah, but, I think that's right. Yeah. But uh, another popular fan theory is that it is King Schultz's wife from Django Unchained mm-hmm. because she died, you know, in the 1800s as well. Don't know right. if that's true. Throwing it out there for you. So once she gets buried alive, which, by the way, like all time most feared thing in my life. I don't want to be buried for the fear of being buried alive. I want to be fucking look, this is it. If people hear this out there now, if they go, if I were to die and people go, I don't know what his wishes were. Listen to this podcast. (laughs) Incinerate the fuck out of me. Don't put me underground because I have lived in fear. Anything that any movie that ever has anything to do with being buried alive. It makes me want to throw up. Right. There was that one with Ryan Reynolds a few years ago called Buried. That yeah. was fucking terrifying to the me. Vanishing. Wouldn't didn't they bury him in that? Yes. Serpent in the rainbow. Terra fucking fine. So when she goes in the ground and he's hammering that thing shut and the light is is going out. Him and his, by the way, him and his little weird short arm friend. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that guy was, but he looked like a little Tyrannosaurus Rex with a drinking his beers. Um, she goes in the ground and we know she's going to get out. But do you guys like the fact that this is a way uh, I'll ask Lloyd first for us to go into the flashback to the Pie May stuff? Do you like the fact that they kind of utilize this whole scene as not only a flashback, but a way to kind of show you? Because essentially the only reason it's there is to kind of show you how she gets out. Yeah. To show you the three inch uh, punch. Right. Uh, Yeah, I do like that. You know, you, if you're going to bring in that character, that's a great way, you know, in my opinion, bring that in. You show her trapped in there and then show her everything that, you know, leads up to her having the skill to get out. Andrew, are you a fan of the Pi May sequences? I love Pi May. <laughs> I love the beard. I love everything about this man. It's more on purpose of being cartoonish and i love it how it knows what it's supposed to be you know especially even fun stuff like standing on the sword in midair yeah Yeah. like they're throwing the sword into the uh into the rack uh you know midstream or whatever excellent stuff always fun uh talking to her like she's an animal practically just insulting just this 
He's a character, a live character that we needed at this point in the movie because this is much different pacing, as you said, John, where it does turn into a Western. It's incredibly slow for the Madsen parts, that whole intro part. So you know, I'll tell you, I did fall asleep in the first half hour of this movie. I had to wake up and rewind it. If anybody knows anything about Lloyd, is that that is not shocking whatsoever. <laughs> not shocking, but true. I did fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, that's big dad sleeping energy right there. <laughs> that's um, exactly right. But no, I love him. I love those sequences. To me, it's it's love and hate, these scenes. I love that we get them because I love him so much. And I love the content of it. But in a way, as a as a as a person who idolizes this guy as a screenwriter, I wonder why we didn't get stuff like this early to set it up as like foreshadowing to get it later instead of just being like, you know how she's going to get out of this? Here's how. And right. like, it's this easy, just you know, throwaway thing to me. It's one part, lazy writing, one part, amazing characterization. And it works though. It's, it works to get the movie through what it needs to at the time. I got to say one of my favorite bits of the Pi May stuff. And I mean, this is obviously going far ahead and spoiling what happens at the end of the movie. But if you're listening to this, you've seen it and you know, we do spoilers. I really like the fact that he's obviously harsh to her. He obviously treats her like a dog and, you know, if she doesn't eat with her chopsticks, even though she, her hands are mangled, she doesn't eat at all. But he teaches her the five point, you know, exploding pot, whatever. But Lloyd, again, the five point palm exploding heart technique. Thank you. I have a hard <laughs> time with that. Um, and there's also a scene when she's doing the three inch punch. Uh, you see her from behind just practicing. And then you see a little scene of Paime looking on at her with a respectful little, you know, smile on his face. Right. And then, then he flips his beard. Cause the character of bill in the, in the end, you know, when you get through everything, he comes across by the way he talks as a very wise guy, right. And he's a wise man. He knows a lot about everything and he knows a lot about Pai Mei, and he knows a lot about, you know, well, Pai Mei never would teach me that. And the fact that we learned that Pai Mei teaches her that, you know, for whatever reason, there's a respect there that bill didn't earn that she earned. We also get to see another thing I like about that whole sequence. We talked about in the last episode is the only time in kill bill volume one that you get to see kind of a very whimsical and beautiful flowery Uma Thurman is in the scene where she goes to Hatari Hanzo mm-hmm. and she's pretending that she, you know, is just there to get sushi or she's a tourist. And we talked about that in the show, how it was nice. You kind of see when she's with bill on the beach and he's playing his flute that that's, kind of her for real at one point in her life yeah you know she hasn't been hardened yet into this you almost wonder like why is a girl this fantastic like into this much bad shit and with this fucking scumbag of a guy you know it, it, so i i like the fact that this movie can make you start to think both of these movies back on like the wise why would they do this you know and that scene by the way is pure great carotene uh this is going to be a theme for me for this episode I love David Carradine in this movie and that scene, he holds that scene in the palm of his hand, telling this story about Paime in almost a Peter and the wolf type way with the flu and, and the way he's telling the story, this kind of folklore thing, by the way, shout out to Paime for being a thousand years old or whatever. <laughs> right? They say, That's right. It's like one uh, uh, three or whatever he says. I'm like, um, how old's he now? <laughs> um, so yeah, shout out to a thousand year old Asian men. They never that, age. It's great. 
that's really uh, his flutes, David Carradine, the flute. I mean, I guess he really plays those flutes. I don't know. They cut away a lot. I didn't hear anything. So unless you know something, I don't. Yeah, but. I saw him talking, you know, he briefly saying, yeah, those are flutes that I had from the Kung Fu show. Oh, so it seems like he's really into, you know, maybe just meditating and playing these flutes. It's a good life, man. You seem pretty good <laughs> at it. All right. Well, I want I wanted to bring up like so we get the three the three inch punch. She gets out of the co- of the coffin. One of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. It's almost indiscernible to see is is that wide shot of like her rocketing up from the grave which makes no sense it's like yeah it's like it's like you know you think that the second part of this is going to be really hard is that now that now the the coffin is going to fill with with dirt but instead they do this shot where like almost like a superhero she just like (laughs) rises six feet from under like she's like a cartoon moving her arms um i like that bit and then i I love the bit obviously too uh of where she's walking across the street and she's walking in at the the diner and the guy's just watching her i also like the effect that we get later on because you know you kind of forget even though the movie goes on that it's like the next day is that throughout the entirety of her fight with L in the trailer, which we're getting to, she's like pig pen, like, like dirt. Just <laughs> oh, yeah. off her. She's filthy. She's filthy. <laughs> John, one of my favorite lines of dialogue in this movie is that diner scene where she sits down at the, at the counter and just goes, may I have a glass of water, please? Yeah. <laughs> like you've been just buried alive, escaping death, covered in dirt. And you're just like super nice manners. Calm, chill. Love that line. It is. This is like anybody else's fucking worst day ever. And she's just like, I got to get back on track. I, I got to figure yeah. this out. I wanted to bring something up, even though we're not there yet, because I thought it was just interesting that you guys said this. I found no point in the first like 20 minutes of this movie, the Madsen stuff. I was engrossed in that. I never felt like sleepy or tired or any of that stuff, which again, if you know the show, you know, sometimes I do that too. <laughs> I found from the second she gets to Bill's house at the end, me personally, I felt that could have been edited down a whole lot more. I, and again, the never ending ending. The, the ending in this film is never ending. And as much as I do like Carradine and I like the Bill character, there's a point where I just feel like telling him to shut up. Um, I, I got to be honest. I, there's there's two things that this movie does at the end that just like kind of kicks me out a little bit. And I, I know I'll get shit for one of them, but. One of well, them the ending is, got changed, John. We'll get there, but the ending got changed. So we will. it might have been different. Yeah. It's just kind of the talkiness of the ending. It seems to take a long time. I don't need her to get there and kill him immediately. I want to see some of the drama of the baby is alive. You know, the four-year-old's alive. She's been living with the dad. I, I want to see some of that. I just don't know if I needed all of that. And then my other one that I'll probably get shit for is that <laughs> I generally don't like little kid actors. And <laughs> like, I know they're kids and I know that they're cute and I, I, I support all that, but like, fuck, they irritate me sometimes. And this kid really irritated me. I don't know what it was, you know, like I stomped the fish daddy. I just, there's something so fake about little kid actors, which I get they're little kids. I've always been like that. My wife knows that we watch movies. I'm like, Oh, fuck this kid. I can't take this, (laughs) but let's get back. Let's get back. I didn't feel that way myself about, about that little kid actor. Yeah. She was very cute. She was okay. I I wasn't totally annoyed by her. She was very cute. And, and she, you know, she, but it was just, there's something about it, you know, like, you know, like when Bill, when Bill Cosby would have those shows on and I, I hate to say Bill Cosby, but like, you know, like kids say the darndest. <laughs> yeah. Shouldn't say Bill, Bill Cosby kids say the darndest things. And then the yeah. kids like make the little jokes and everything. I feel like when kids are on TV or in movies, I feel like they're, they're like those Hollywood kids and they're so fakely on 
that it just it bothers me. I'm going to like this is where a bunch of parents probably stop listening to the show. But <laughs> Which, by the way, is why that Louis C.K. bit about the uh, the behind the scenes of Schindler's List is like the funniest joke to me ever. Do you know the bit? No. Oh. So apparently they, they talked about like the screen test for Schindler's List. And there's a kid in Schindler's List. Have you ever seen it? Oh, yeah. Where her, one of her big lines is she just screams goodbye Jews like at one point. <laughs> and then so they go through like that. There had to be like kids, you know, just a, a line of kids auditioning for this. Just a parade of kids just going in there with their interpretation of the line. And so it's like the cutesy kid where he's like goodbye Jews. And then like, <laughs> and then like after all those little like shitty kid actors, these Hollywood kids come in, this kid just comes in, just nails it. Go goodbye Jews. Just getting like super bad. It's, it's one of my favorite bits. <laughs> and Louis CK, by the way, also hard to bring up. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Let, let, Everybody's canceled. Yay. Let, let's, let's get out of the segment of the show. Where we're talking about comedians who either a jerk off on people or, or date <laughs> or, or date rape people or drug rape people. Yeah. Oh. Let's get back to this Weinstein movie. What's going on, John? Oh yeah. Oh boy. Oh, yeah. This whole podcast has suddenly become problematic. <laughs> so she gets out of the grave. She gets her glass of water. L driver, who's played by uh, Daryl Hannah, um, ends up talking to Bill and is under the impression she out- talks to Bill and uh, and Bud under the impression that Bud has buried her life, has gotten rid of the problem. Uh, she is going to go to buy the Hatari Hanzo sword from Bud for one million dollars. Right. So she wants a million dollars. She wants the bride's. Atari Hanzo sword, the one that was made in the last episode, which Bud kept after <clears throat> after dispatching her. So uh, that's the next seg- segment we get into. She goes there and uh, Andrew, what ends up happening? Let- let's condense it a little bit. But what, what ends up happening in this scene? Uh, well, Oof. Bud makes a hell of a drink in a blender, buddy. I don't know. <laughs> he makes an incredible, incredible drink. That's what everybody comes here for. Well, not, um, not just that, but he he gets like 80 percent of it in the glass and the rest right. of the counter. <laughs> that whole yeah. entire scene, man, that is so disgusting. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. it's a visceral nightmare. Um, yes. But to me, uh, if the aim you're getting for is actually one of my favorite scenes where uh, the Mamba in the case uh, is an incredible scene to watch. It's actual great forethought. Uh, I think Daryl Hannah is amazing in this movie, by the way, and she's great in the first one, but it's more minimal. This one, she gets the full out scene, gets to show all her chops. I love her taking out the notebook and reading facts about Black Mambas to him, like, <laughs> you know, like she's a preschool teacher teaching a lesson and then being like, pay attention. Oh, this you is like where this it's part. about you. Yeah. Um, you know, those lines are great. And she sells them amazingly. Like, and the fact that she does all these scenes, she's like 42 at the time. You know, I'm 38 and, and I'm more on Lloyd's side of falling asleep during a movie, like to fight <laughs> like she did and to have the retribution plus the, the poise that she has in the reading scenes. She kills this scene and the follow up once we see uh, the dirty feet to come that fly through the air. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Daryl Hannah plays a really good villain in this. She she plays a character like Bud. I don't feel like you really dislike him when you meet him. You kind of feel bad for him. But the second you meet Elle, especially even after kind of knowing her from the first movie, you're I don't know about you, but me, I'm like, oh, fuck her. She's she's just slimy, you know, and you know, there's no way (laughs) that she's not going to try to kill this guy to get the sword. Uh, Lloyd, I think you mentioned me earlier that you you had what the little bit of the uh, 
a little bit of the pants chub for Daryl Hannah in this one. Yeah. Even, even, yeah, both of them together. I mean, this was a great fighting scene. So, so she dispatches of, of uh, Bud with, with the black Mamba and describes all the stuff that's going to happen to him, which is pretty cool. And then, yep. She gets, uh, what was it? Feet to the face, feet to the chest <laughs> of uh, um, Uma Thurman, Beatrix coming in and they just have a fantastic fight. Um, they're both looking hot. The best Daryl Hannah I've ever seen, bar none, one-eyed Daryl Hannah with hair in her face. Well, while um, we're being three dudes just talking about hotness, Lloyd, yeah. <laughs> did you notice the haircut differential from Uma from the first Uma. movie to the second? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I more dug the first one. I don't know if that also colors my opinion of volume one versus volume two uh, with haircut changes, but uh, definitely, you know, it, it goes south for, for Beatrix and Bud in terms of hair as, as far as uh, volume one to volume two. That's for sure. I do like her haircut when she goes to see Esteban. She seems to have a, a totally new haircut at that point. Yeah. Cause that's more, uh, yeah, I guess that would be flash forward at that point. Right. So. I think yeah, she. Yeah. I think she's also trying yeah. to use her feminine wiles on him. Yes, she is. Yeah, she. And I like that bit too. You know, we're jumping ahead just a little bit for a second, but I like that bit too because you know she knows that he's like a pimp, and she knows obviously he loves women, and she's she's very pretty, and she's kind of acting a certain way with him. But then, like, he makes the joke. Of, well, he says the thing about like Bill shot you in the head. And she's like, yes, he did. And he goes, I would have just cut you. And then like two minutes later, like his whore comes over with like the fucking. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's obviously run a fucking blade across her yeah. mouth. And you yeah. see, you see Beatrix look on her face. Like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like this yeah. guy, you know, is <laughs> not kidding around. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, I hope that she's an actress because I heard a lot of the women in that scene were actual you know, that's an actual brothel. Like those are actual prostitutes from the area. So I hope that is not her real. Oh, man. Like her I read the same thing. And I fun. wondered the same thing as you, Andrew. Yeah, that's tough. By the way, uh, again, not to jump too far ahead, but now that scene is infamous based on what happened to Uma Thurman. Yes. Oh, yeah. We right. talked about that in a little bit. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We talked about it a bit in the first in the first one. Now, getting back to the fight. Yeah, I want to say my my favorite part of that fight was them constantly not having enough room to take the sword out of the scabbard. Yeah. And, yeah. and they must have made that, I don't know, three or four, three or four little bits on that, which is pretty hilarious. You know that they changed that scene, right? That it was actually staged a little more like a professional like fight, uh, a little more, you know, using the sword or like really getting into it in the the sense that they could, but huh. they changed it after Tarantino watched Jackass 2. <laughs> I wish that was a joke, but it's uh, not a that's joke. Funny though. Well, you know what, Jack? Then Jackass Two saved us because you know the fight between Orenishi and and uh, and Beatrix in the first film is a very eloquent sword battle, you know. And Ver the Vernita Green fight is like a knife fight with you know with a lot of like kicking each other through shit. That was that was kind of like the next level down. This fight is like everything put together. This this is yeah. literally... This was perfect for in a trailer. This is two fucking women beating the piss. They're, look, they're, I'm not saying this under my own uh, <laughs> under my own taste, but I'm telling you right now, there's like a subset of guys out there that jerk off the scene a lot. I know it. <laughs> I, abso there. I absolutely Jesus. know it. 
You're, Lloyd, are you tell me you don't think there are. I'm telling you right now. Uh, I did never thought of it. Uh, I'm telling you right now, truth. on a VHS copy of Kill Bill Volume 2, there's a ton of guys out there that have it like right at that scene. Ugh. If you threw it in, you'd go, why is it always on this scene? Because they're <laughs> snapping one off to it right there. All right. Um, I believe you. Did you also know that Daryl Hannah improv that whole post eye poll thing? Yes. And, and she did it just for Tarantino to laugh, which makes me laugh now because it is. It's a hilarious scene. It's great. Like just uh, this blind woman just trying to still go for vengeance. There's this stubborn woman. And I love it. There's two things about it that are great. Um, and, and Tarantino kept it because she did. She did it as a joke to get him to laugh. But seriously, your second eyes just ripped out. Yeah. And you would and be panicking. You'd be panicking. And she hates she fucking hates Beatrix more than anything. Yes. So she she's like having this extreme rage. And then the third part, which might have been incidental, is it's a callback to her death in Blade Runner. When she gets shot, when yeah. she gets shot in Blade Runner, her character does about the same fucking thing. Lays Absolutely. on the ground and starts to freak out and make noises and stuff. So it, true. it's it's very it's very cool. One of my favorite bits of this whole it's simultaneously one of my favorite bits and one of my least favorite bits of this whole fight. But I I love the f- the grossness of it is when she throws the uh, coffee can of spit in her face. Uh, that yeah. was disgusting. And here's the reason why I love it. Like I I grew up with a oh, good friend of mine. He passed many years ago who dipped Ugh. and there was always bottles of that shit around the nastiest habit. I lived with him for years. I've kicked those bottles over. Um, I've seen a friend one time actually drink from one <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Turn green. Right. Yeah. So this, this is something I've seen. So I know how gross that is. I don't have to know how gross that is for you to know as well. But like when you have a connection to it, it's even worse. But what I love about that scene too, is that, she flips it in her eyes and just for a second, Daryl Hannah becomes like a real person and goes mm. gross. Like, <laughs> yeah, she does. Yeah. Like these two at this point have kicked each other in the vaginas. They have like beaten the shit out of each other. They've thrown each other through windows and mirrors. And she takes a second to just like go on about how gross that was. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Over I the line. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really like, 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 like no spit. All right. That's the line. No spit. <laughs> Which by the way, uh, you know that the spit, I think it's the Madsen one on Beatrix at the graveyard. Oh, that's right. actually Tarantino spitting on her face. Uh, that's not a surprise. Uh, Once cause they, cause they couldn't get it right when they tried to do it with effects or with another person. So he literally stepped in and spit in her face. Uh, yeah. yeah. Good times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that probably goes, I mean, I'm sure she willingly did that, but it probably didn't help the, uh, the many year rift that they had. <laughs> that was because of what, what did you mention earlier, Andrew? And what happened? So you talk about the accident. Yeah. Yeah. So, they use this old almost museum car for that scene where they're going up to uh sorry, what's the character's name again? Esteban. Esteban. Esteban's. How can I be? Esteban. Esteban. Um, yeah. Uh they go to the brothel with Esteban. Like on that dirt road, he thought he had, you know, more more length. They changed the route. And she was like, I'm not comfortable in this car. I don't know how to drive it. It's old. I don't know all the mechanisms. It is not going to go well. She fought against it. He insisted. She ends up, you know, they change the route. She takes the wrong turn. She veers off the road headfirst into a tree. She's concussed. She even said later, like, that she thought that, you know, she might not even walk again because she 
lost feeling in in, in certain uh, yeah, places. Both her knees got messed up. Yeah, because it's you know head on collision to a tree. Did you see the video for this? I actually saw it. I didn't want to watch it, so oh. I didn't. But uh, yeah, the, the descriptions I've heard are not pleasant. Uh, and then even Ethan Hawke, you know, stepped in and and was yelling at Tarantino about that. Like, there's so many. It's all bad. It's all bad. Uh, Weinstein wouldn't turn over the video for years out of fear of uh, litigation uh, issues and things like that. And it's gross. It's all bad. And only just what in the last three or four years did Tarantino say, you know, he feels bad about it. The tapes now in her possession. Hence how she was able to to put it out in the press back then. But yikes. Created a huge rift between him and her. She was his muse for a while. She was kind of the muse behind Pulp Fiction. And, uh, you know, well, and during their time on Pulp Fiction was the I should say that again. She, while on Pulp Fiction, along with him, you know, created this whole you know, uh, bride Bride character character. that ended up being, you know, essentially his, you know, his, his, you know, next couple of movies after Jackie Brown. So obviously they're very close. And yeah, I didn't know anything about this until about last year. Um, and, and, I, and you can argue this tanked her career a little bit like she wasn't getting the same roles after this because, you know, a lot of the films that made her her were not only just Quentin's one, but the, like that kind of indie Miramax, that 90s and early 2000s type of films. And Weinstein was such a huge figure. I wouldn't doubt if he squashed a lot of things for her and threw his weight around and kind of put a poison pill out there. Because if you see her career post kill bill, it's not pretty. Yeah. Well, and you got to wonder how much of it too is, is not just maybe being blacklisted, but like she was fucking physically hurt too. Yes. True. Not being able to work is a whole, and that's one of the things she said was that they caused her and you know, inability to work. And I think I read somewhere that this, that whole incident caused a huge rift between Lawrence Bender and uh, Tarantino. So this is kind of very defining, oh, yeah, it was nuts. Yep, mm-hmm. very defining for his career and her career. And, uh, you know, it's too bad, too, because she really at this point, you know, she, she was on the top of the world. Um, yeah. it, these movies did really well. These movies did really well and um, just very interesting uh, and, and kind of shitty. And not to mention, you know, not to get too far again into our into all this stuff. But she was also fucking, uh, you know, assaulted by Harvey Weinstein at at least one point. So. Yeah, uh, Uma Thurman, we love you. Hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully all all is well. Um, if you, and, if you want to hear, a, suck. That's all there is to it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> if you want to hear one fun story about that scene, though, just to counterbalance all that, the story that he tells about Bill. Do you know this story? What the thumb sucking? Yeah, that's Kurt Russell, right? Yeah, it's it's funny, right? Like he he tells this story to Quentin Tarantino about when he was a kid that anytime he saw Marilyn Monroe on the big screen that he'd she'd started sucking his thumb, and then it ends up in a movie, uh, you know, a few years later. It's wild. Kurt Russell, uh, his childhood is fast fascinating because he was obviously a Disney actor as a kid, um, yeah. you know. And I've I've seen stories where he talks about playing ping pong. He was like ping pong friends with Walt Disney as a child. He'd play ping pong with him, and you know he grew up on a lot of sets of uh, even if he wasn't in the movie, he was like uh, on the set because of it. And the craziest thing, and I'll leave it at this because we could talk do a whole podcast about it. But Walt Disney's last words were Kurt Russell. Look it up. It's absolutely <laughs> really true. nobody knows why. That's crazy. But Rosebud. Walt Disney's <laughs> I and I think he didn't say them. He wrote them down. Look it up. His last words were Kurt Russell. 
And, wow. and Kurt Russell's been asked about this, and he he's like, I don't know. He's like, I believe it. I don't know. Maybe he was an old man in the grips of going through something. Maybe he had an idea. Maybe Kurt Russell killed him. I'm not putting that out there. <laughs> Walt Disney's last words were Kurt Russell. Okay. So right. isn't that fucking, I learned that like two years ago and I kind of wondered if it was bullshit. And then I read an interview with Kurt Russell where he acknowledged that he knows it's a thing. So that's fucking crazy. Two more things about that uh, fight scene in the trailer before we go. Yeah. First of all, I'm not very easily disgusted by things in movies, but when she ripped her eyeball out, and then threw it on the floor and stepped on it and squished it between her mm. toes. Oh, <laughs> I think that's probably the grossest thing I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, and then the second thing I want to say was I thought it was really cool as she was leaving the black mama snake, uh, black mamba snake went back the black mamba codename, you know, uh, black mamba walked by like that snake was, would not even strike her. That's how deadly she is. It's one of the crazy stats of this movie is that in the first movie alone, when she fights the crazy 88, you figure she kills. I mean, again, there wasn't 88 of them. She kills many, 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 many people in that movie. Mm -hmm. She kills one person in this whole movie. She kills yeah. Bill. Bill's yeah, the only yeah. person she kills. She doesn't kill Bud and she leaves L driver. You're there. You're to assume the L driver is going to die from her wounds or the snake's going to get the it. snake. Yeah. Right. But she doesn't kill anybody but Bill in this movie. My favorite thing, too, is that uh, El Driver is the California mountain snake, which yep. is uh, famously known for its ability to eat other snakes, particularly the the type of rattlesnakes the Sidewinder is, which the is Sidewinder. Character, <laughs> character's nickname. So it's kind of this cool, you know, these are the Tarantino isms that I like, where it's this deep dive, like, ah, I should have seen it coming if I was a scholar, but I'm not. Yeah, right. There you are. If I only knew more about the California mountain snake, I would have seen this whole sidewinder thing coming. <laughs> I know my kids watch so many nature shows. Have I not done that already? <laughs> so we get to the end. She meets Esteban. Esteban points her in the right direction. We get a little flashback to when she found out she was pregnant. Um, this is uh, if we're going to be men here for a minute. This is prime Uma Thurman when she's looking at herself in the mirror and you just see how goddamn hard her body is <laughs> in yeah. that scene. Oh, yeah in those black panties and that little black like half shirt. She's doing that thing where she's like trying to look at herself like as if she was pregnant, but you looking see at her baby bump. Yeah. Looking at her baby bump, but you, you just see like those goddamn superhero lines on her. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> looking good. I, I like that whole scene. I, I do like that whole bit between her and the assassin where it's just, it ends up being two women having like, woman a, to woman, woman to woman moment, you know, where it's like, I'm pregnant. Okay, read that the whole bit. It's a little goofy, but I like the fact that this assassin is willing to just go because, you know, she might be a killer, but now she has this whole thing where I'm not going to kill a pregnant woman. That scene to me illustrated how great the cinematography is. Nobody talks about that in, in Tarantino movies. It's always about his dialogue or about the violence. His movies are shot incredibly well. And that scene in particular where she backs out of the room and stages it perfectly to like still have the conversation through the bullet, like the, the gun oh, blast in the window and those perfect lines, everything lines up so perfect. And this movie is shot by Robert Richardson, who is a three-time Oscar winner. One of the best, you know, living cinematographers uh, he won for JFK, The Aviator, Hugo. He did Platoon. 
few good men. The guy is amazing. He shot every one of Quentin's movies post Kill Bill Volume 1. So awesome stuff. And that scene just reminds me how awesome he is. Yeah. So we get to the end now and it's it's this whole family coming together scene. As I mentioned, I find this a little bit long in the tooth. Uh, Bill, you know, reintroduces her to the daughter who at this point she didn't know was still alive. That's all very dramatic and it's good. Um, but then we start getting into the them talking back and the forth. Superman talk. The Superman talk and the truth serum. And I find this all goes on a little bit long for my taste. Again, I, I'm not just looking for action or for her to kill Bill. But you know that no matter what is said, she's going to kill Bill. So I think a little bit of it just goes, you know, there's the whole bit where he's talking about the difference between life and death and the fact that the little girl learned this and he's making the sandwiches. He's putting the condiments on with a butcher knife, which is fucking insane. Use a butter knife. (laughs) You're going to fucking cut yourself, Bill. Um, We talked about this a little bit beforehand. One of the rare occasions uh, we talked about this before we got on one of the rare occasions where Tarantino uses a real brand uh, bimbo bimbo bread is uh, an actual, it's one of the largest bread makers. Uh, It's a Mexican brand. And uh, a few years ago when hostess went out of business and there were no Twinkies, people were freaking out. Bimbo runs hostess now. So when you see that bimbo white bread, it says bimbo Blanco. That is actually a real brand as opposed to 90% of the shit that's in his movies. Yeah. From what I understand about this movie is that it has the most product placement of any movie he's ever done. Like even the cigarettes, he has his own red apple that he uses throughout a lot of his films. Um, In this one, half the time or three quarters of the time, they're smoking American spirits. Oh, okay. Maybe that's the other one. That's yeah. I was trying to, there is red apple in this one, but only, yes, there is like on a table somewhere, like not actively. Yeah. Right. All right. Interesting. All right. Uh, Yeah. I I also feel in this scene with the long talk, I don't know if, if Tarantino is trying to make us more sympathetic towards bill. I mean, absolutely supposed to be rooting for him now. No, he's, he's trying to tell, he's trying to make you see Bill's point of view. Bill's point of view is with that whole Superman slash Clark thing is that she's fucking Superman. Right. If she were to go off and get married to Tommy and work at the record store, that's all bullshit. And you're a killer and you're supposed to be a killer and you're not like everybody else around here. And, you know, and I, I do like the fact that it's punctuated by that scene with the truth serum where he says to her, would you would you think your life would have worked out? And she it doesn't take any time for her to say no. She knows that the Tommy marriage was not going to work. You know, she, she just knew that she'd have the baby and that would be like this. You know, that would be it. You yeah, know John, I, I, I teased it before where I was saying, like, I think Carradine's amazing in this movie. That Superman monologue is one of my favorite pieces of dialogue in this whole movie. I agree with you that that whole scene as a collective is way too long because it loses all momentum from where she's coming in and what ends up happening. It really is a brake slammer uh, to just go in with that seeing the child and doing the bang bang thing and and, you know, faking a death and playing along, even though she should be like Mm -hmm. like she's seeing a ghost. She's screaming Um, on the inside. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting scene to to unpack because of all the things that Uma Thurman has to do, but also understanding what it does to the movie. It's kind of how I felt about being a person who saw Kill Bill Volume 1 in the theaters, and then six months later, you come in and the first 20 minutes are 
like this slow Western pace versus you came out of a, a screaming, you know, knife fight for most of a, <laughs> a, a, a movie just six months ago. And, and without us knowing that this was going to be the turn, I feel like the ending feels a lot how I felt about the movie as a whole. But you're right. I don't need to hear about her, uh, the kids, stupid goldfish, that whole scene. Um, besides actually, I appreciate John that he's cutting up that sandwich and doing the condiments all with a butcher knife, because that's just, he, he's a, he's a killer. Who cares? It's exactly what I would want if I had some kind of, you know, overlord making a sandwich for me. Cutting off the crust. Very good sandwich. Listen, Andrew, it's fucking careless. All right. (laughs) (laughs) It shows his whole character though. Uh, You know, you don't shoot a woman in the head and then not kill her. It's careless. You got to shoot all over. Take the whole thing. Shoot the heart. Shoot the head. Cut off the head. Like, yeah, burn her. Whatever you got to do. Make sure she's dead. Careless. Careless altogether. Uh, I I do. I do have to say I love the fact that uh, he does just straight up tell the daughter that he shot mommy and tried to kill her. Like I yeah. do, I do like the fact and I, and I do, I also agree with you. I think Carradine's great in this. The end really slows to a glacial pace, but I do like, I do like that. I like the super Superman dialogue. And I do love the fact that he's just like, I tried to kill mommy and you know what she was. I was a bad daddy. <laughs> what? Well, how about this John? where you go to films, uh, four hours uh, of a movie called kill bill. And the fight scene for everybody else is several minutes. And the fight scene between these two big things, 35 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually fine with that. Lloyd, what did you think of the final? Let's let's mention this, by the way. Not only the final 35 second fight, the 35 second seated fight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Seated fight. At a table. <laughs> yeah. No, I was not really impressed with that. Um even the fight with uh, Oren Ishii, you know, which was kind of maybe a little bit of a letdown, was way better than this. But I do appreciate the fact that she did perform the five point palm exploding heart technique, <laughs> which was uh, is this when he learns that, oh, oh she taught you that? Yeah, well, I, he's slowly I think he's slowly learning that like people just really <laughs> I don't think Pai Mei taught her that because he doesn't like Bill but like Hatari Hanzo made the sword simply to kill Bill right you know yeah. and then like so he knows that he's like uh he, he makes a comment about that earlier to Bud like I thought he stopped making uh, swords and he's like he, he must really you know have an issue and and then in this you know he, he taught you that you know like he wouldn't teach me that but he taught you that and that's my ultimate fucking failure is that I couldn't you know I couldn't get close enough to learn something like that. What makes you better than me? I, I love that scene. I, I, I love the little like choreography of her balancing herself with the scabbard and like their like little bit of like sword fight, you know, whatever it is. And then just the, just the look of the, of the, uh, of the punch. I'm not going to fucking say it again. When she <laughs> just, you know, like so hard to say it's all these like light taps, you know, on, on these pressure points. And then like, he, he knows what happened and he immediately has blood coming down his mouth. And then they have like that whole, like kind of like dialogue where she's teary eyed because she's finally done. She's done what she knew she had to do. It does slow to a crawl. It, it slows to a crawl, but it's a satisfying ending. Look, if it ended any other way than her killing bill, 
I would have been really pissed off. No, you know what I mean? Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. But John, do you think, especially for how long that scene does go on, as you noted, from showing up and seeing the kid, watching a movie with her, like kind of getting domestic in this whole thing, multiple monologues, you know, going through the whole motion. I, I wish there was at least maybe a hint of, are we just wasting time? Or is she actually considering like, oh, I didn't know this was an option to not kill Bill mm-hmm. and to kind of move on with my life or 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 to have a sense of like this kid is being held by the worst person that she could possibly imagine. How is there not some version of a reaction that she has, some kind of emotion here, some kind of line of dialogue to where you you get a sense of that from an audience perspective that either there is a confliction or there is no confliction and you're just wasting my goddamn time. The other fun part for me uh, is this could have gone very different. Originally in the script, it was supposed to be, and they throw it in as a line, which I actually found kind of fun um, where he's like, yeah, we can wait till dawn and fight on this beach. That's close by. That was originally how it was supposed to end. Uh, But then Weinstein stepped in and said, we don't have enough time and resources, I think to do that. So they, changed the scene up a little bit. This is what we ended up with. But do you have any thoughts on on that? Me, um, I feel like she was going to kill him no matter what. I feel like you could tell that she was going to kill him no matter what. Um, and I'm also fine with the fact that we didn't get like a big fight between the two of them at the end. In all, in all honesty, because I think part of what makes Bill like kind of this like mythical character is that you almost don't ever see anything he does. You don't see him even shoot her. You know, it's all conjecture or told in a certain way we never see him being a really bad dude we just know he is right also shout out to that kid or the that room is probably the most soundproof room in the history of mankind (laughs) as a person who just tried to build an audio studio apparently i need to talk to uh whoever his decorator was or uh carpenter or something uh because that kid didn't wake up through a gunshot trank shot uh a full full full-on fight the kid's a sound sleeper. You got to appreciate that from a parent's side. Don't you, you gotta love that in a kid? <laughs> I, I do kind of wish that there was a silencer on the gun when he shoots. That would have made me happier with that bit because that's the first thing I hadn't seen this in a while. And I thought, the kid, is the kid going to come downstairs? I don't remember this. Right. Now, <clears throat> she's got a fucking she's got sleep apnea or something. She, <laughs> she's snoring so loud. That kid. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, right. No, my biggest thing in the end, uh, I really just wanted this movie to be over. That's how I felt in the end. Yeah, but is that just normal I Lloyd? Just like, wanted, wanted it to, to be over. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I was just saying, you know. <sighs> All right. I'm interested in hearing your score. We'll get that in a few minutes. Uh, Lloyd, any Tarantino-isms that we should go over? So we've got another trunk scene with Buddy, you know, looking at Beatrix in the trunk. You've got more bare feet. The worst, <laughs> yeah. the most notable one, the squishing the eyeball. Um, the corpse POV scene. So Buddy looking at the bride in the coffin and L looking at Buddy. Uh, you've got the God's eye POV looking straight down. Uh, Buddy in the money and Beatrix in the bathroom. Mirror scenes, like you said, looking at her uh, tummy in the mirror. Uh, the black and white suit. L drivers wearing a black and white suit. Bathroom scenes. Oh, by the way, smartest move ever. If someone's trying to drown you in a toilet, just flush, flush it. it. Just watch it. Yeah. Uh, The car scene, uh, 
not even talking about the the famous car scene, but the opening shot of her driving in a car, talking to the camera, uh, comic book scene, lots of Superman talk, more samurai swords. So the white civic from Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown is in the parking lot of Buddy's Strip Club. Mm-hmm. Same car. Uh, the red apple cigarettes we talked about. So then you've got Mr. Blondes from Reservoir Dogs, Michael Madsen. His gas can was in the truck. Uh, and then the straight razor that he used to cut the ear off of Marvin Nash. Marvin Nash. Same straight razor that... Um, Beatrix had in the coffin stuck in the boots, which were also the same boots from Mr. Blonde. Yeah. Mr. Blonde's boots and straight razor were on her feet. And uh, <laughs> luckily, uh, luckily enough, because the razor got her out of her, out of her, uh, what is that called? Ligatures, right? Ligatures. Um, Ligatures, sure. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's some interesting stuff. Another one uh, we didn't throw in with the cast because it's really minor is uh, Sid Haig shows up again from. Oh, uh, right. I forgot. He Sid does. Hague. Yeah. He was the judge in Jackie Brown and he's like the bartender in the strip club and uh he just has like one scene but it's good to see sid Haig. i don't know if he does did it to this point in his career but he uses um you know for anyone who doesn't know robert rodriguez director robert rodriguez did the music for this film uh he he didn't compose anything sort of his band is actually the last shot like after she kills Bill and and goes. They that whole song that they play is his band. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that. But what I was gonna say is that he uses because Tarantino thought of this movie as like his version of the Dollars trilogy. Uh, you know, fistful of dollars, a few dollars more. Uh, the Sergio Leone movies and a lot of what they use for music here is Ennio Morricone's. Uh, mm-hmm. score from those old spaghetti westerns and he does that later like he'll put it in Django I think he puts it in Hateful Eight too uh, so it's something that becomes a Tarantinoism but isn't at this stage I believe right hey, hey, Hateful Eight if I'm correct right Morricone actually scored that movie yes correct yeah yeah totally mm-hmm. right, before, right before he died yeah yeah and what was it Robert Rodriguez was paid how much Lloyd for this one dollar one U.S. dollar. And in return, Quentin Tarantino accepted one U.S. dollar to film the one scene in uh, Sin City that he directed, which right. I had not seen that in a long time. But I believe it's the scene where he's talking to the head right in the car. I think that's uh, the Tarantino scene. It's been a long time since I've seen that. But yeah, so they, they traded off for a dollar because right. The last movie was um, composed by Riza from Wu-Tang Clan. Correct. Yeah. yeah. But there's way more better needle drops and everything in volume one versus this one. There's a couple of ones where they try to use uh, certain songs that are more known or or certain things that are more you would hope they would have been better Tarantinoisms, you know, with the soundtracks that he's had in the past. To me, they don't work as well. The music is much better in part one. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll just put it that question. way. Yeah. I'll put it that way. Even if you don't like this movie as much as part one or consider it a week or half of one movie, whatever it is, the music is much better in part one for sure. Oh, um, yeah. Master, let's, let's get some box office and then let's rate this thing. All right. Well, we got um, the opening weekend, which was April 16th. 2004 made 25.6 million came in number one um as comparison volume one made 22.2 million 
So obviously people wanted to see what, what part two was all about, but the total domestic was 66.2 million as opposed to 70 million for volume one and 154 uh, worldwide as opposed to 180 for volume one. Uh, I'll give you that weekend. Number five that weekend was Home on the Range. Number four was Hellboy. Number three was Johnson Family Vacation. I don't even know what that is. Cedric the Entertainer, I think. I've been uh, saying that too. That's the yeah. first thing that came to my mind. Yeah. Number two, The Punisher. And number one, Kill Bill, Volume Two. And then for the year, that movie came in 44, whereas Volume One came in number 40. So very close. Number 10, Polar Express. Nine, National Treasure. Eight, The Born Supremacy. Seven, The Day After Tomorrow. Six, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Number five, The Incredibles. Number four, Meet the Fockers. Three, Passion of the Christ. Two, Spider-Man 2. And number one, Shrek 2. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It did beat Dawn of the Dead and Saw that year. But it's so impressive because both movies combined cost $60 million. So yeah. right. the fact that one movie can make your money back and then some uh, and to do it twice is great. Oh, yeah. yeah. And not to mention something else they did that was smart uh, was that the week part two came out uh, in the theaters, part one came out on DVD and, and video. Right. They actually delayed it just for that. Yeah, they dropped them both. So I guess if you picked up the... Uh, if you went to your local blockbuster or whatever other uh, rental facility you had and rented Kill Bill on the Tuesday, you could go Friday. You know what I mean? That that was pretty smart. I'm sure that got them some extra business for people that didn't see it in the theaters. Yeah. I wonder if there was precedent with that with Matrix 2 and 3. I think they did the same thing. Yeah, probably. Probably. It would, it would be very smart if they did. You know, hey, you, you didn't check this out in the theaters. We're going to drop it the same week, a couple days before. And if you love it, get out there now. All right, let's start rating this thing. Manster, we'll start with you. Now, as a reminder to the audience, uh, we did Kill Bill Volume 1 on the last episode. Manster gave it a 4.25. 4.25, I gave Volume 1, huh? Four and a quarter. Okay. Uh, well, this one, you know, adds extra plot and dialogue to the action-heavy, you know, first half of the film. You know, it still delivers... Pretty good, hard-hitting film. But for me, it fell short of the mark. I'm going to give this one a 3.5. 3.5. Three and a half. This is a movie a minute ago. He said he couldn't wait for it to end. And he gives it a three and a half. <laughs> hey, that's... Well, what is it? Two hour, two and a, two and 15 minutes? It's, it's you know, definitely... That's a long time for me. <laughs> oh, I, I agree. It's definitely the longer of the two movies. I don't think the Madsen stuff drags like you guys do. But I, the end, it's like, holy shit, how long are we going to be in this house for? <laughs> this is taking forever. Can you just fucking kill him? <laughs> All right. So I gave uh, Kill Bill Volume two, uh, 1 a four and a half, four point five. 4.5. I absolutely love that movie. Uh, this one, not so much. As we mentioned very early on, there are things I like about it. I love I love the interaction with, uh, with Bud. Um, I think the fight between her and uh, Daryl Hannah might be the best fight in any of these movies. It's definitely the most brutal. Uh, and I do, I do like the fact that we get like the dialogue is great. It's, it's Tarantino dialogue and getting to kind of meet Bill as a character more, you know, what do we see him? Did we even see him in the first movie? I can't remember. Is he shown or is it just his voice? Do he's just his voice in the first movie. So we kind of get, get to see him, you know, all that said, I'm going to go a full point drop. I'm right with Lloyd. I'm going to a three and a half. I still mm. really enjoy this movie. I think it's really well made. 
but it just man again if it was one movie the first half is just better than the second half it's it's the full metal jacket effect right full metal jacket is great through boot camp and then they go to vietnam and i don't remember anything about it because i shut it off every <laughs> fucking time because, what's your major malfunction yeah it's just not that good the second arlie ermy dies and and uh d'onofrio kills himself and they move on from that it's just like this movie doesn't fucking work for me anymore you're getting me depressed <laughs> andrew host of the nomcast here on forgotten entertainment you can check him out weekly and all of his great guests uh and uh if you're into the netflix original movies you want to definitely check out what he's talking about what do you give kill bill v2 well, I, I definitely echo your cinema. I thought the full metal jacket comparison is very good because I think when I wrote down in my notes, I said it's much like most music double albums I've ever owned <laughs> where like like there's usually one side that's way better than the other. Uh, there's usually some bloat to where you make it wonder like why is this two albums in the first place? and that. But ultimately, you have to sit back and bow to the fact that it's an epic achievement that they had this kind of output and, and the goods, you know, that you create, there's goods on both sides. So you can't dismiss them out of hand and you got to learn how to appreciate it. I think when I first watched this film in the theaters, I didn't appreciate it because six months later, like I said, it's a hard turn to go from this insane martial arts revenge movie to what this was. A lot of the things that I liked on the first initial watch, um, held up but i think more things for me this time that didn't feel right the first time actually improved because i was able to isolate the watch you know mm -hmm. what i mean i didn't go back and watch kill bill one first because i knew it would color what i thought about part two so watching it independently i think it works better than i remember it working as um but it does have a lot of issues we brought them all up the rest of this entire episode i still wonder what a three-hour cut of this movie looks like <laughs> um but yeah. i would say uh 3.75 i'm basically doing the uh the the one dollar more thing price is right thing to you guys <laughs> i'm going yeah i see what you're saying but i liked it just a, maybe a tad more than you guys did um because carotene is awesome Hannah's awesome. Some of those scenes just stick with you. But I will say as a totality, when I think of Kill Bill, all the first 10 images that run through my brain are all part one. Mm -hmm. all right. Fair. I think that's fair. I think that our opinions on this are going to be most people's opinions. But if you feel differently, go to ForgottenEntertainment.com. Uh, and uh and maybe uh i don't know uh comment or you know send an email is there to a way to comment there. i don't know but go to that website anyway i <laughs> see i'm tricking them to go there you can check out the nomcast you can check out you know uh, forgotten cinema yet another star Not wars another podcast. Peanut butter sandwich <laughs> yet another peanut butter sandwich podcast uh you can do all of that um until next week when we come back with our friend scary larry dwyer and talk about death proof which uh I am I am mm. I'm super not looking forward to rewatching that one. But you know what? We're here for you. I'm looking at that with an open mind. Yeah, I guess I have to try to. Yeah, I have to try to. I'm John. I'm Lloyd. And this has been on the QT. Andrew, thanks again for coming on. Loved it. Had a great time, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you next week. See ya.